You are listening to the Sharp End Podcast. My name is Ashley and I'm your hostess for the show. This podcast is brought to you by the American Alpine Club and sponsored by Mammut. Designed and developed in the Swiss Alps, Mammut has been making the finest alpine equipment since the 1860s. Driven by a continuous quest for innovation, Mammut's technical clothing, footwear, climbing gear, avalanche safety, and alpine equipment are distinguished by the highest quality, functionality, and safety. They embody Swiss technology and perfection. Mammut, absolute alpine. Thank you to the Colorado Outward Bound School and Sunto for the additional support. In May of 2018, Hans Florin and his partner were doing a leisurely climb of the nose on El Cap. At one point, Hans took a fall and snapped his left tibia and fibula about three inches above his ankle. He told me they call it a pilon fracture because of the crushing blow that happens from below. Basically, the bottom head of his tibia broke into three or four pieces. He's got all sorts of rods and plates and screws holding it together at this point. On his right side, his calcanus, or his heel bone, took the entire blow of the fall. It cracked into like six pieces. He now has a plate with all kinds of long screws pulling it all together. I got a talk with Hans Florine when I was up in Leadville, Colorado, right before I drove to Alaska. I'll let him tell you all about what actually happened. Hi, Hans. Welcome to the show. Hello, darling Ashley. Hi, I'm Hans Florine. Do you want me to spell that? No, you don't have to spell that, Hans. Thanks, though. Pronounce like what you're standing on. <laughs> uh, well, thank you for that. Um, yeah, you're definitely a funny guy. Well, the alternative is crying, I think. Um, that's what I've been telling people when they say I have such a good attitude about getting injured and getting through living with casts on both feet. And yeah, it's, yeah, granted, it's not the funnest place to be, but oh, I make fun of my little feet. Um, but my, my calves are just super small and tiny, like sticks. And I, yeah. Well, well, why do you have tiny legs? What happened? I, uh, fell about two thirds away half the way up El Cap, and um, uh, a nut that I was placing popped. I fell about 20 feet or less and hit a ledge, and then my rope came tight three feet later. So it's kind of hanging three feet below the ledge, just pulled myself up and could see my left foot was bent at an angle and the tib fib, and my right foot was numb. So I just immediately uh, called 911 and started working on a rescue. Um, it's pretty tough. It's the middle of the day and um, frustrating. When was this? This was May 3rd. Of this year? Yes. So five weeks ago. And this happened on your favorite route, right? Which is what? The nose of El Capitan. How many times have you climbed the nose? 110 if you count that one. I had a little assist from the search and rescue people hauling me to the top. But right. only 109 if you don't count it because I got assistance. What pitch were you on when you fell? 23. And what exactly happened? Well, um, I was uh, self-filleting. It was like right at the end of the rope. I only had like 10 feet of slack left, maybe less. But uh, the thin, I was in a thin crack, like a 511D crack at the top of Pancake Flake. 
and I placed a nut that popped out on me, and the piece below me, the number one Camelot, caught me, but the rope was not quite tight when I hit the ledge straight down below me. It's kind of like the not the worst combination, but had I been belayed tight, I wouldn't have hit the ledge. Had I just been like free climbing, I would have probably pushed out from the rock and missed the ledge because the ledge only is in the corner, right? But I was standing on an aid ladder that made me go straight down along the rock and land right into the ledge. So is it the 30th, 10, 20? It's the 30th year since I climbed the nose my very first time. And something like my 170 eighth ascent of El Caps, and I've never been rescued before off of the rock, so I kind of feel like I'm doing all right record-wise. So this is the 109th time that you were on the same exact route with no previous accident. So I guess my question is, uh, what happened this time? Why this time? It was on just kind of a casual nose-in-a-day pace. We were probably going to if we had been going at the pace we did, we probably would have topped out in 12 or 13 hours, which for me is kind of moderate. Um, we actually dropped our small cams earlier on the route. We had one left, but um, I had already used it. And so normally in that place there, I put small cams. But um, I wasn't going to stop climbing the nose because we dropped cams. It's like people have been climbing the nose with nuts for decades, so... I had a full set of nuts, and I just um, I tested this one, and it seemed solid, but when I put my weight on it, it fell. So why this time? I don't know why this time. Um, one might think I would have fallen when I'm going crazy fast or something, but I've kind of had a lot of interviews, actually, the last week because of the speed climbing by Alex and Tommy and the recent uh, two deaths on Saturday, but... Um, I, I think that I'm super safe when I'm going really fast because I'm so focused on what's happening all the time. You're hyper alert at the area around you, which is easy to do when you've got such a fun, sort of exciting goal like that. Whereas when you're kind of, I don't know, I point out people that are on the route for three days, they're kind of ho-hum, eating a sandwich, looking at the clouds behind them, exhausted from being on the wall all day, you know, um, Granted, it's exciting, and everyone should probably go vertical camping once, but it's it's hard to keep your focus for 12 hours straight for three days in a row. So stuff can happen. Right. Do you place nuts often, or are you more of a cam kind of guy? I'll do a cam over a nut any day, even if it's a V-slot. And mostly because... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt you here. Can you describe to the listeners what a V-slot is? So when you think of a crack going up a rock... Um, it might be the sides of the crack are parallel to each other, in which case your standard nut or chalk won't work very well because, or at all, because there's no taper down where the sides of the crack get closer together. So when they come together closer, we call that a V-slot. Um, and in Yosemite, those are actually rare because of the way granite cracks is almost always parallel-sided. And the exception is when you have piton scars and someone's hammered in so many pitons that you have a hole. And then at the very bottom of the hole in the crack, you can imagine there's a, a little V-slot forms where you can place a nut. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Thanks for describing that. Okay, so you were saying that you'd place a cam over a nut any day, but you decided in this moment on your 109th time climbing the nose to place a nut. 
mostly because I didn't have any cams with me. <laughs> we had dropped them earlier on the route. So when you drop cams 23 pitches up, do they hit anyone on the way down? They certainly could on a busy route. Um, we actually dropped the cams down um, at pitch 8, uh, which is you know still a good 700 feet up. And on, on the particular place where we dropped them, there was no... The route doesn't is not directly under you, so there's nobody but possibly hikers along the base that might be there. Hans, can you remind me the date of this accident? May third. Great, May third, two thousand eighteen. So, so if anyone found a bundle of cams at the base of the nose, those are Hans Florings, and he would like them back. Right, you got a good listener audience. Maybe we could get those cams back. That'd be nice. Either way, if you keep them, it's probably going to work fine for you. All right. I don't believe in this sort of foreboding thing like, oh, we should have turned around when we dropped the cams, and I don't think that you should not use them because that was the ascent I got hurt on. I think they're fine. What size was the nut that popped on you? Oh, you know, I don't know number, but it's the size of your finger or my finger, so probably a half inch across. On the narrow side, a half inch, and on the wide side, three quarters of an inch. How far did you fall? I'm guessing right around 20 feet when I hit the ledge and then another three feet after that before the rope caught me. I, I flipped backwards after I hit the ledge, landed on my back upside down, dangling on the rock. So kind of, you can imagine maybe a robot hitting the ledge and then just teetering over backwards. But that last part of the hit was really gentle. I mean, I had a helmet on, so I didn't even like think about it that part. It didn't hurt or anything, but all the damage was done on the impact with the, the ledge. So what did your body feel like when you when you looked down at your foot and saw that it was 90 degrees? What were you thinking? What was your body feeling like? Um, uh, lots of different things, but like kind of one was how amazing the human body is. You know, you, you see movies and you see people just writhing in pain and screaming and stuff when things like that happen. And I, you know, like my foot was so far to the side, it was probably within an inch of it being a compound fracture and a bone sticking out the skin. So it looked terrible. And I'm like, huh, that doesn't hurt as bad as it looks. you know. <laughs> but um, my endorphins plus just muscle tightening around it and protecting it and stuff did all the stuff that a human body is supposed to do and in shock, I suppose. Um, and as I pulled myself up to sit on the ledge, I actually accidentally tapped my foot against the rock and it went from a scale from 1 to 10, it went to 10. Like my foot just felt like someone hit it with a sledgehammer for a millisecond. And I'm like, okay, don't touch your foot against anything again. That was both true for the right and left foot. So um, eventually I you know, talked on the phone with the Rangers and yelled down to Abe, uh, Abraham Shreve, who was my partner in uh, we decided, I, well, I kind of insisted. I didn't want to sit up on that ledge by myself. I wanted to be down by my partner. Um, and he lowered me down, and I just kind of slid my hip against the wall and pushed out with my hand so that my foot wouldn't contact the wall, which didn't work perfectly, but I probably only touched it to the wall once per pitch that he lowered me. How many pitches did he lower you? Three pitches. It went through our, you know, discussion with the Rangers. Well, should that he just lower me all the way to the ground because it was two in the afternoon and I've done the route enough. I actually have repelled from there with an able-bodied person in two and a half hours, which 
there's no way we could have done that. But I'm like, huh, maybe it would take us double or triple, but we'd be down by 10 or 11. Wait, so you've repelled from the same place that you fell from before? Yes. And I think the reason was because I was with a fellow dad and we had to get back for uh, kid time or lawn mowing or maybe it was a job the next day or something. I forget what it was. Um, but we were just like looking at our watch like, oh, we're not going to make it to the top in a round time. So let's just wrap. Okay. So we did. How many kids do you have? I have two. How old are they? My boy is 15 and my daughter is 17. Have they been helping you out with drives and basic life stuff? A little bit. Uh, my sister has been visiting from Baltimore this week. And I got, I'm just fortunate. I lead a community of people here at the Diablo Rock Gym. I'm the manager here. So I just have a ton of friends here that have offered all sorts of help. Hey, Hans, do you still have the BMW with the license plate that says no bivvies? I don't. I got rid of that um, a couple of years back. That's a good one. And it was very appropriate for me, but I switched to a, a family van. Well, you can't say that now because didn't you have to stay overnight on top of El Cap the day you got injured? I did, yeah. I violated all my no bivy rules. Even made it to the summit and didn't have the energy to crawl off. So I had to sleep on the summit. I think that's okay, Hans. Crawling off would have been pretty miserable. When was the last time that you crawled away from something? I don't think I ever have. Uh, but of interest, I climbed El Cap three or four times with Wayne Willoughby, who's um, he um, had polio when he was a kid. He's a little older than me, so he, he had it right before the Salk virus in '53, and he has all sorts of um, post polio syndrome problems, and he he can barely with canes walk, uh, hand canes and crutches walk to the base and then he'll often have to crab crawl off of sections of the nose so i've uh, i've been with him when he's had to do that and i'm just like mind boggled how much work he puts into getting to the base and getting off of el cap let alone how much work it is on the route which bodes to another problem i have is that all these people that i hang out with from eric weimer who's blind and done the seven summits to Craig D. Martino, who's missing a leg, to my friend Patty Haskins, who's deaf. All these people climb, you know, big walls and stuff. And so everyone's asking, are you going to climb again? I'm like, well, I, I have to. Like, all these people around me, like, would laugh at me if I didn't. Well, yeah, but you also want to. There's that, yeah. There is that. I don't think I'm really going to be a golfer. You still could be. I mean, those golf carts are pretty fun to rip around. And you could probably get one that's all souped up with a V8. That's true. Trying to figure out. I've never seen anybody like swing a golf club from a wheelchair, but I suppose it happens. Maybe me and Quinn could go out golfing and like someone just hold us up, little exoskeleton tripods, and we could play golf together. Game on, girl. Betting shots of tequila or something on each hole. You'd definitely be crawling away from that scene. <laughs> there you go. And wouldn't feel anything either. So what do you think were some of the of the subjective factors that played a role in causing this accident? Because we know that, yes, you placed a, a nut. You placed a nut, and it popped. And, and yeah, that is a clear objective factor. But what were some of the subjective things going on here? Um, well, here's some things about, you know, a lot of people who climb with me know that I jokingly and somewhat seriously, I'm like, oh, I never use nuts. But I always bring nuts on a big route like El Cap the nose of El Cap for that matter, because you never know when you might need them for retreat, 
because um, they're cheap to stick in the rock to retreat off of, or some fixed nut that's long in there gets yanked out and you need to place one yourself. Um, furthermore, it's just smart to have them because they have other uses, like if a bolt hanger's missing, you can hook a nut around it or whatever. But in general, I'll, I'll always place a cam, even if it's a V-slot, simply because they widen out, bite the rock a little better, so to speak, and it's easier for your follower to get remove the piece. Whereas a nut, it's harder to get it out. Um, and most cams now you can use as passive pro, meaning it's you, you can't incorrectly place them in a, a V-slot. Um, so I'm, I'm just kind of putting a baseline out there that um, that's a little bit about my background is I try not to use nuts simply because they're, they're harder to take out. Now, whether you place a nut or a cam and you're aid climbing, you should always test it, which I did on this nut, while I'm still attached to the piece right below it. And imagine I'm standing and there's a camelot at my belly button or at my waist, and I'm clipped to that camelot with a daisy. I reach up, place the nut, and then I put my other daisy on the nut, and I kind of put my weight on it, test it, and if it doesn't blow, then I go, okay, now I'll move up on it. Well, I tested it, put the aid ladder on it, and when I stepped on it, I actually stepped all the way up until my waist was about at the nut, and then it blew, which mean I was, you know, my waist wasn't even with the Camelot. It was like three or four feet above it, so it gave me a good distance to start accelerating before I hit that ledge. And, you know, the moment before I stood up an aid ladder, I removed my daisy from the Camelot because otherwise I wouldn't be able to keep going up. Had I left my daisy on the Camelot, I would have fallen and gotten a really bad yank on my rib cage because there's not much dynamic movement in a um, daisy chain, even the flexible rope ones that Petzl has now, which I use. Which, you know, maybe bruised ribs, definitely bruised ribs would be way better than the broken legs I have. But, um, again, you do the sequence, you test the nut, then you unclip your daisy and you go up and clip into it. Your rope's still through the piece below, so that's your, kind of your cushion fall. But, like I said, I didn't have um, a tight belay. I was self-belaying and had, you know, five, ten feet of slack out. I mean, mine could have just been yet another simple little 20-foot fall and I bounced on the end of the rope, dynamic fall, and got back up and to my high point and kept going if that ledge hadn't been right there and I hadn't been so close to the wall. So, I don't know, analysis of an accident, how could we have avoided it? Oh, you could uh, observe the terrain around you and go, you know what, I need to shorten up my the length of my rope here a little bit because there's a objective hazard, there's a ledge down there. And I need to have a shorter lease in case this piece blows. Yeah, no, I see the objective hazards, but I want to know what was going on through your mind. What was happening that day that could have contributed to this? Um, I mean, you've climbed this 109 times. So something was different on this day. That's, that's what I want to figure out. I think there was these moments of foreboding because I actually left Abe's, uh, descent shoes at Sickle Ledge because there's just a cluster of gear there and I, I looked it all over and I'm like, okay, I think I got all of our stuff and ended up leaving. And then we dropped some cams. I think I foibled and dropped a beaner a little bit after that. And 
you know, Abe was like, hey, shouldn't we go down because we've dropped all these cans? I'm like, well, I don't know. I think we can get through. I don't think we need those. Um, and you could try to figure like, well, since you guys dropped those things and forgot those shoes, maybe, maybe that should have been assigned to you to go down. But Abe is a very competent partner. He's climbed the nose with me in a day before, and he's climbed with another partner other than me. Um, so he's an accomplished climber, and obviously I climbed a bunch. So we were fairly comfortable. Um, and like I said, it was in the afternoon, very nice weather, t-shirt and shorts weather, and kind of everything was just blissful up to the point where I fell, really. Um, we hadn't run into any parties that we had to pass because we went around some on the Jardines Traverse, and I was getting actually fairly comfortable. I, we had just finished the Great Roof, which is one of the longer leads of the route, and kind of one of the more... Commonly, it's a place where you fall because there's little tinkering nut placements or, or cam hooks or small TCU placements, and there's a, a fair chance that you might pop something in there because the pro protection is technical. But we got through that, and I was like a little bit relieved. We're on the straight up the final dihedral section. Um, so my mindset prior to the accident was like, oh, this is Cruiser. We're just going to be da-da-da-da-da, connect the dots, and we'll be on top by, you know, 6 p.m. and have two hours of light left to hike down. So that all got blown away in a matter of a millisecond. Okay, so that's it. That I think that was it. That was the answer that I was looking for. You were, well, you were comfortable. You had gotten past what you knew as the crux move, and you were moving into this sort of cruiser mentality. Yeah. I mean, most, most people I climb almost, well, everyone I climb with for the first time, I, I tell them, hey, you know, I fall sometimes. And they they give me a weird look because that's an odd thing to say. But um, I'm, a, I'm a celebrity climber. Uh, and sometimes you just think, hey, you know, does Alex Honnold ever fall? Yeah, he falls. Um, not when he was with me, but um, I've fallen before. And I just try to grab people's attention that, like, what we're doing is dangerous, right? And... Um, like I said, objectively, I could have looked at where I was and gone, let's just place two nuts instead of one, or let's leave my daisy on until I've completely, fully put all my weight on that nut above, or let's shorten up my lead, uh, line a little bit so that I don't hit that objective hazard below that ledge in case the nut blows. Um, it so happened that the pieces below the cam, I, I doubled up two small nuts and equalized them, which is... Uh, you could say overkill, but um, safer than normal. Um, and it's, I don't know, it's that um, vigilance on safety that has allowed me to climb 35 years, and this is my first kind of big accident. My worst thing in climbing before this was a broken tooth, where I hit my face against the wall, an upside-down fall. So I feel that I have a good attentive uh, personality to safety. But uh, we all know as climbers, most accidents happen on descents when you're getting tired or whatever. And I would guess that second to that is during and near the end of the climbing day is when other accidents happen. So this could be considered certainly past the halfway point in our day. Hans, you mentioned this time being the pinnacle of speed climbing. I mean, Alex and Tommy just did this climb in an hour and 58 minutes. They did, and seven seconds, no less. 
Yeah, and seven seconds. And then the same week, there were two fatalities in the same accident. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm uh, never seeing so much attention on Yosemite climbing in the media in a short, medium range term. I mean, they they had all sorts of media. <laughs> I mean, there must have been three or four TV stations that did a piece on me falling. And breaking my legs. I'm like, gosh, I guess there's no cats caught up in trees this week. Um, and then they did a piece on Alex and Tommy getting the record last Wednesday. And then, of course, them breaking it um, a second time. But, you know, social media and maybe just obviously more climbing gyms and more people accepting climbing. It's been put in the, the media frenzy, which I think is good because it brings more attention to climbing. Of course, if a mom is watching a guy with two broken legs talk about two guys that died on El Cap or any parent. They're going to be like, I'm not letting my kids climb. It's tough to see past um, the that immediate horrifying example of what's happened in the last actually eight months, right? With Quinn getting paralyzed in October and then me with broken legs and these two, two guys dying. But a couple people that have been interviewing me lately I noted that I started speed climbing in 1990, 1989, and I don't know of any other speed climbing accidents in the last 28 years, which is a pretty good record. Yeah, that's a pretty good record for the entire industry and, and your personal record as well. You've had one broken tooth and then this in the last 35 years. So why does our culture and society put this negative light on speed climbing? Because it seems like the people that are actually doing it are very safe about it and are actually very calculated. So there's there's tactics that you use for speed climbing that you would use for quote-unquote normal big wall climbing. Um, Self-belaying is not a speed climbing technique. It's a solo technique. And many solo climbers go out there and use self-belaying. Um, all solo climbers do. Um, and self-belaying is, you know, as safe as the person, how they use it. Just like a partner belaying you is as safe as how safe the two partners are and how they use that technique, right? Um, like for me, when I was self-belaying, I actually wasn't speed climbing. I was like, da-da-da-da-da, a piece every four feet, just kind of adding distance on our upward end of our climb, Abe, I was waiting for him to clean the pitch below. So in the, in the realm of like urgency, frantic movement, I, I was just kind of, oh, da do da do Abe climbing at a very normal pace, um, not in a rush, and something popped. So it was my self-belay technique that was incorrect um, that made me hit the ledge, not that I was speed climbing. And you could even say that, like, hey, Quinn's um, incorrect self-belaying technique caused her to hit the ground. Not, it's not because she was speed climbing. She could have been belaying herself that way, solo climbing, just on a, you know, big wall outing climb where she's trying to solo a route. Um, that same thing with um, short fixing isn't inherently dangerous. Um you can short fix, and it brought short fixing kind of something you see more so in speed climbing than in normal climbing, but 
you don't have to be speed climbing to short fix and you know have one person jugging the other person self belaying. You could just be kind of being efficient while you're on a big huge wall that over multiple days for that matter. Um, I have I have no delusion that climbing is like as safe as I don't know walking dogs or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that BMX bike riding in pools and skateboarding in pools and and parkour stuff and all that, people break and snap limbs all the time. Um, and people die, you know, motocross and NASCAR and all that stuff too. Um, and in mountain biking for that matter, or kayaking. Um, and hey, we gravitate, if you're an outdoor athlete, um, you tend to gravitate towards things that push your physical athletic limit and then some even add in, you know, the risk factor. Like I think alpinism is, and a lot of people know that alpinism is far more has far more fatalities than rock climbing because you've got Mother Nature throwing things at you, weather and bergschrunds and crevasses, big words like that, um, all these time pressures. And um, so this thing about this message to tell people, well, if you're not dis- making quick decisions that are correct you die in alpine environment or you don't succeed to summit. So to tell someone to, that speed climbing is not a proper endeavor is got to be uh, couched in what the heck you're talking to them about because any alpinist knows that you must act quickly, make good decisions quickly, you know, execute them well to be a, a successful mountaineer, Right. And the successful mountaineer is the one that comes home and can go out again. Um, Make good judgments like, oh, you know, I hit that 1 p.m. or 2 p.m. afternoon turnaround time. I know snow conditions are going to go to hell and yada yada. And I'm not going to let my poor decisions or someone might say my ego tell me to just go for summit and everything will work out fine. Mm -hmm. You turn around and you go back and you wait, leave the summit for another day. Um, I have certainly turned around on El Cap many times. I think I'm at about 10%. One in 10 times that I go to the base of El Cap, I turn around and wrap down and don't go to the summit. So that to me is one of the main reasons that I've climbed it a hundred times is because there is adventure in it. And I like having to use my vast years of experience to decide, make critical decisions about, hey, we should turn around now because we're not going to make it or some other reason. Turn around now because we had a boo-boo. So uh, all that was roundabout, like what do we tell people? We tell people to be vigilant about safety because going climbing tomorrow is more important than getting killed today or injured badly today. Hans, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. Um, is there anything else that you want to say to our listeners? Go to Yosemite if you're a climber. It's, it's an incredible place. It's different than other climbing places different than sandstone different than limestone and um it's magical highly recommend it well hans it was a pleasure talking to you um thank you so much for being on the show and i'd like to thank all the listeners for supporting the podcast thank you to mamut for being the headlighting sponsor and thank you to the colorado hourbound school and sunto for being contributing sponsors The Colorado Hourbound School has been changing lives through challenge and discovery for more than 55 years. 
They offer wilderness expeditions in Colorado, Utah, Arizona, Alaska, and Ecuador. Courses range in 8 to 81 days in length for ages 12 plus and include backpacking, mountaineering, canyoneering, rafting, and rock climbing. Visit cobs.org to plan your next adventure. Thanks to Sunto for recently signing on to sponsor the next six episodes of The Sharp End. For over 80 years, Sunto has developed the tools to help mountain athletes safely navigate new territory and train for major expeditions. From high-performance compasses to state-of-the-art GPS and altimeter watches, Sunto devices are chosen by leading alpinists worldwide for their durability, accuracy, and ease of use. Sunto watches are handcrafted in Finland, and the word Sunto comes from the Finnish word meaning direction. Learn more at Sunto.com. If you love the Sharp End podcast, let the sponsors know. Call the American Alpine Club, Mammut, the Colorado Hourbound School, and Sunto, and let them know how much you value this podcast and how much you want to see it continue. That really does go a long way, and I really appreciate it. Again, thanks so much for listening, and remember, play hard and be smart.